Trade Houseology is the supplier of choice for professionals seeking designer furniture, lighting and accessories. Saving you time spent on sourcing, admin and logistics so you can focus on creating beautiful interiors. Welcome to the Interior Design Business. We are the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward, and with my co-presenter, Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors, we look at the range of issues faced by professional interior designers and share insights on how to deal with them. We're joined every month by a special guest who can share their advice and expertise with you. Today, we're looking at how to design for the client you never meet. Over half of all interior design projects fall into the public or commercial realm. In workspace, healthcare, hospitality, education and residential development sectors, success or indeed failure often resides with the designer's ability to accurately predict the needs and aspirations of the imagined end user. What tricks of the trade enable them to successfully make these predictions? Welcome to the interior design business. We're recording today in the hidden gem that is the Nora 11 showroom in Clerkenwell. This Danish furniture company is renowned for its clever rethinking of Scandinavian design, and it's one of the many excellent brands available from podcast supporter Trade at Houseology. Please get in touch and pay them a visit. Yes, it really is the most beautiful little showroom full of the most exquisite furniture. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today another past president of the British Institute of Interior Design, Dean Keyworth, founder of design practice Armstrong Keyworth. Good afternoon, Dean. Hello, Susie. I'm delighted to be here on this lovely sunny afternoon too. Good. So, Dean, before we kick off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background as an interior designer? Yes, I actually had a career change in my mid-30s. I was a marketing executive for a travel company before that, uh, but interior design had always been my dream. And I got to the mid-30s and I thought, it's time to do it now. So I was actually traveling a lot for work and I did a distance learning diploma in interior design. I did my homework on planes and in hotels, so I did it that way. So you were able to do some research on the job in absolutely, hotels. Yes, absolutely. fantastic. Obviously, you've got lots of experience of looking inside hotel rooms and hotel foyers and lobbies and public areas. How, how does taking a brief on a commercial hospitality or public project differ, do you think, from a, a private residential client? Well, it's definitely more business-like. With a private client, it's more emotional, it's their house. You have to bear in mind that they're the ones going to be living there and they've often got quite strong ideas of what they like and don't like. And they're spending their own post-tax And they're spending their own post-tax dollars, yes. Um, And also, obviously, that comes into the point about the finances of a commercial project. It has to pay its way. The, The ROI is very important. So budgets tend to be more set in advance. And I think the creative process is more set towards the beginning than it would be with a private client. Would you agree with that, Susan? Yeah, I think I think so, because you've usually got a pretty clear idea when you kick off on a commercial project about who the target audience is. So you've got a firm budget and you have a firm idea of perhaps who it is that you're trying to attract. And it's not going to morph in the same way that uh, a private client does. Because with private clients, often when they come to you, they come to you saying that they want one set of things and actually you end up with something entirely different because the brief develops as the project progresses. 
Okay. So in that commercial world, they're better at giving briefs and tighter with the money. Yes. I mean, it varies. <laughs> Some of the briefs are more comprehensive than others, but I think it's the end goal is different. It's a business, you need to make money on it, whereas a private client, it's their house and you want them to be happy and comfortable in their own home. But, but I would say that sometimes with commercial clients, they're not always terribly clear about what their goals are. I mean, the, the, the goal is that they want to make a load of money from whatever it is they're doing, but they often haven't got terribly strategic. Even some really, it surprises me, even some very experienced commercial clients often have no idea really how they're going to achieve this end goal. Why do you think that is? I'm not really sure. I don't know whether they don't think about it in the same way that perhaps designers do. Or, or it gets too personal. So they're, they're creating a space for somebody else, but they know what they like, which is, isn't necessarily suitable yes, for the target yeah, we, we have a we have a client who can't see anything that, you know, he always wants to put what he would have in his own house. Exactly. So you'll show him contemporary art for some funky development down in South London, which is going to be inhabited by a bunch of, you know, millennials. And he's saying, but I want Picasso prints or, you know, things like that. You know, it's always got to be sort of classical art. And you're kind of going, yeah, but, you know, it's not what you'd have in your house. And this man probably has the original Picasso <laughs> in his house. Um, you know, he, he can't divorce what he wants from the, the commercial reality of the project. So that can be, that can be a bit frustrating, actually. Is there any way that you can uh, teach them to apply diligence to understanding their audience? I think you do have to just keep reminding them that, that that's the end game. You know, it's not about you, it's about, you know, you don't have to live there or, or eat there or sleep there or use that spa or swim in that pool. You know, you don't have to inhabit those spaces. You have to think about pleasing the people that are going to pay you money to inhabit those spaces. And also in the, the London market, the way it is now, it's very competitive. There's a lot of new build going on, which was already started before this current uncertainty. So each development really needs a USP, not something you've seen, the Picasso print you've seen a hundred times before. And I think that's the way you persuade them. They're like, okay, you may not be comfortable with it personally because you haven't seen it before. That's the idea. Nobody's seen it before. It's new, it's attractive, it's going to bring people in. I mean, I, th I, think, I think it would be fair to say that if you're in business, you've got somewhere in business because you're an entrepreneur. And being an entrepreneur, you think you know everything about your business, and including your customers, without necessarily having done a whole heap of research into understanding what your customers yeah. actually well, maybe want. It's, maybe it's the fact that when they started up their business, it was a different world, and that the world has moved on and become more complicated, and, and customers have become more discerning and more design-focused, and, and they've just changed. But the client is actually still the person he was 20 years ago. And that's, in, I think, mm. where the interior designer can add real value because we can actually help to evolve their businesses. Whose responsibility would that be for audience research and targeting? Is that a marketing person or is that the chairman or the chairman's wife even? It depends, I think, on the, on the project. Um, on big projects, yes, you often will have a branding person that you're working with. Um, sometimes not. Sometimes really big companies don't have a branding agency, uh, or if they have a branding agency, it's got a, they've got as far as perhaps a corporate color and a logo, and that'll be it. And there's still no kind of real integration between those brand values and the and the interior. So it's it often falls, and I think more and more so, it's falling down into the bucket of the interior designer to actually create this kind of joined up thinking. Yeah, I think you're right. Also, sometimes the worst scenario is you're dealing with. A marketing person or a more commercial person who's listening to you 
and you're discovering together the target market and then the head honcho comes in, mixes it all up again. So it, it really does depend on the, the company, as you say. Do you think they look at the target audience element of a brief as just something the designer really cares about? It's a bit fluffy. I think, yes, sometimes, but they also don't realise how the disciplines are connected. So they would say, maybe, and this is my perception of it, they'll think the designer is colour and the carpets and stuff. And particularly like in a service department or a hotel, there'll be a whole housekeeping department, whole maintenance department, and they are often sitting in the meetings like, yep, we have to have it tough, we have to have the carpet that's washable and all that. Um, and I think that as a good designer, that's already part of your brief, even in a private thing that, uh, you know, the usability and the maintenance are kind of in your head. And not only you've got a nice leather coloured wardrobe, but it's got decent drawers and hanging in it. So I think the client thinks that's a separate thing, when in fact it all comes under good design. Yeah, no, great. We have one particular client that we do these big resident, multi-residential um, private sector, private rental sector developments for. And we take samples of materials into the meetings. And the first thing they do is they all get their car keys out and try and scratch holes in whatever it is we're showing them. Because the whole part of their remit to us is that everything has to have a 10-year lifespan. And it has to be really, really easy for the maintenance people to look after. And then the other thing that they worry about, and this was something that I have only just begun to get my head around really in the last maybe five years, is that in any commercial space, things wear out at different speeds. So your kitchen cupboards, you know, the hinges and the cupboard doors and stuff will break down long before the worktop does, for example. The sink and the tap will get scruffy, um, you know, the floor might get, well, the walls need repainting, but maybe the floor, maybe the bathroom floor is still fine. So it's also getting to the point where you can actually maintain and replace certain things as they wear out without having to dismantle the entire apartment or, or hotel room or whatever it happens to be, you can you can rectify things and maintain things without destroying the rest of the interior because obviously speed and efficiency and cost on refit and maintenance, they're on those ongoing maintenance costs are huge in any sort of space where you've got people coming and coming and coming and coming. It's just mm. it's a really it's a really tricky one. So you might say that something has a ten year shelf life, but actually bits of it won't last that long. So how can you keep it up to speed until or keep it looking pristine until you get to the point ten years down the track where you say, right, now's the moment to chuck it all out and start again. And that's all part of the budget return on investment conversation as well. It is, it is, absolutely. Yeah, it's complicated. How early do they get you involved in that budget return on investment conversation? Often you'll be given a budget which equates to a number of pounds per square foot. That tends to be the way it works. Um, we often have conversations with the clients about which are the bits that need to really be durable or be really stand out. They may not care so much about some elements of it. It might be that some things, maybe carpets aren't such an issue because they're just thinking they'll replace them every three years anyway. Okay. So... Um, the other aspect of return on investment is, particularly in a hospitality project, how aware are you of the revenues they need to be generating and therefore the audience that it's appealing to? Do they, do they really involve you in those discussions and the impact that has on the design? I think it's usually that they've worked out the ROI that they need and we have to work in the budget to, to meet that. And sometimes it's more realistic than others. But then there are ways that you can do that. So, and again, I'm quite often surprised at naivety of some clients where they'll say they're going to take a certain amount of money, for example, out of a, a restaurant or a coffee shop. And you kind of go back and you say, okay, that's 40 covers. That means you're turning those covers 
20 times a day with an average spend of 15 pounds a time, I don't think that's really very realistic. And so, you know, at that point you have to kind of go back to them and go, really, is that is that what we're doing here? You know, do we need to adjust our offering? Because the constraints of the space means I'm never going to get that many people through here unless, so at which point you might say to them, well, what we could do is we could offer a sort of grab and go breakfast service. So people are coming through and they're not actually sitting down to drink their coffee or drinking coffee and spending four hours on their laptop. What they're doing is grabbing a pastry and a coffee and maybe they're only spending five pounds a time but your churning, your throughput is so much greater. How aware are they of the impact design has both on the revenues you can generate, but also on how people feel about a space and the benefits that can bring? Um, I used to I used to work for Topshop, and we used to do these refits, um, new new shop fits for for the Topshop branches, and the the marker of success was when you'd open a new shop fit. And people came in on the first two or three days, and we'd, we'd all there'd be marketing people, market research people, asking people who they thought the store had been designed for. And if the customers coming into the shop said, "I feel as though this shop has been designed for me," that was the right answer. And so you knew you had achieved your goal because if you can make your customer feel instantly at home, so you know they walk into a space and kind of go, "Ta, this is great. I feel really comfortable here," then you know you've you've won. Mm. What do you think, Dean? Is good design valued? Yes, and I think it has changed over the last 10 years or so, the actual recognition of the value of design. I think maybe the Candy Brothers started it. They'd take a, a site in Knightsbridge where the average pound um, price per square foot was X and said, we're going to get Y. We're going to spend a lot of money on the way of getting it, but we, that's our goal to double the current pound per square foot in that particular area. And they did it. And other people then followed in that wake. So I think... You can do all these equations about what the market's like at the moment, but if you're really bold, you can break through to the next level, but it does require investment. Although I have to say the Candy Brothers were a bit of a, I mean, they were, they were an amazing example and they did do some remarkable work and they did, in their developments, manage to double the pounds per square foot that they were achieving. But what the knock-on effect of that was that every small time two-bit developer in Belgravia who was doing up little muse houses suddenly thought Tuff, if the Candy Brothers can get 4,000 pounds a square foot so can I and so they were putting their little houses on the market tiny little houses for seven seven and a half eight million pounds and then wondering why they weren't selling the Candy Brothers development which is next door to the Mandarin Oriental Hotel on Knightsbridge they were able to achieve the prices that they did because they had all the services of the of a five-star luxury hotel right next door. You know, you could get room service delivered to your apartment. Someone would come and pick up the dishes and there was housekeeping and there was access to the spa and there was underground parking and there was valet parking and shopping services and everything else. So you, your pounds per square foot wasn't just about the space that had been created. It was about the total package and the cachet of being in a branded development and I think the other people that have piggybacked really successfully off things like the Candy Brothers have been things like the Bulgari Hotel and the Bar the Bulgari's apartments right next door on the opposite side of Knightsbridge or just up the on the other side of Knightsbridge Green and so the ones you were involved with very much fell into that particular type didn't they yes but I think it like exactly like you say it's moved on even more the brand you know there's the Bulgari building the Almani building in Miami now which again is breaking per square foot records. So uh, there's a difference between exploiting an established brand and moving into development to actually creating a sort of lesser known but known for the quality of that building, which is what we tried to do in, in Park Lane with Hyde Park Residence. So talk to us about that project, Dean. What was that about? 
Well, so this building um, is next door to Dorchester in Park Lane, 1930s building. It's been serviced apartments for about 30 years, but it hadn't really been touched for about 25 of those. So the owners realised that they were actually missing out on a great asset which they could be charging probably double the rents that they were for the unrenovated flats. So are these, just flats. so I'm clear, these are short-stay apartments? Or yes, they're, yeah. Okay, so they're not short-haul short tenancies? No, no, it's, no. it's serviced apartments, so I think the minimum contract is three months, uh, but people stay for years. Um, but it was tired. So, um, and it was quite a sort of bland building, 1930s, nothing much to recommend it. And that's where, as we were talking about before, the research goes in because I did a lot of research about the history of Park Lane, how when they knocked down the aristocratic mansions uh, before the Second World War because they couldn't afford the servants anymore, they built these blocks of flats and they called it the Park Avenue of London because it was very American. It was a whole new idea to have a block of flats. So we tried to get some of that glamour, that 1930s glamour and Mayfair luxury into the building and into the design. And that was its USP. It wasn't a bland service department that you see all over London. It was different. It was luxurious. It was like your luxury home for a rich person from abroad. Okay, so a kind of cross between hospitality, hotel room kind of application and a private residence. It's exactly that, because the managing director of the building was an ex-five-star hotelier. So she was very keen on, as well as the look of it, the user experience. So we had endless discussions about the internals of the wardrobes, whether we had a super hot flushing loo or a separate tap. Again, going back to the demographics of, you know, we didn't know there were, at the time it was mainly Arab clients, but they wanted to expand that to Russians. Americans came as well, but they have a very different take on what they want an English apartment to be so we had to try and keep it unique but also broad enough to appeal to a lot of different nationalities and demographics. Well that in itself must be quite challenging because if the client briefs you that we're looking at an international market by its very nature that's not a very clearly defined space is it it's very broad. No No, and you do need to be aware of I mean we've, we've done jobs where we've done again some of these muse houses and Russians, for example, won't buy anything that they can't drive into a secure garage. They want to be able to get out of their car in their garage and go straight inside because if they park in the street and walk 25 metres to their front door, somebody might shoot them, you know, heaven forbid. But, you know, you were talking about bathrooms, you know, whether do you, do you have a bidet, do you have a separate bidet, a loo, do you have a, do you have a, um, do you have a douche if you're, mm -hmm. if you're targeting Middle Eastern clients? Um, you know, you have to be very particular about which side of the loo the douche goes on because, you know, there are all these rules um, that, yeah, some some of the sort of the Japanese loos haven't really taken off. They seem to be things that would solve all those mm. problems. But people from certain parts of the world are very resistant to changing the way they've always done things. Fair enough. Well, we had belt and braces, the super Japanese loo with hot flush and the and a douche. There we go. You see, ticked all the boxes. So how on earth do you come up with solutions that are going to appeal to such a to such a broad audience without being too vanilla? about it. No, I was just going to say, I think the first thing you need to do is, is just do your homework about who your target audience actually is. Um, you know, go and talk, for example, to the estate agents, all the, all the local estate agents, if you're doing that sort of a development, will be able to tell you who's renting, you know, who are the people that are coming, who's renting, what are they spending, who are the top spenders. And also, don't people ghettoise, don't they? If you've got a building that's predominantly, for example, Middle Easterns, you will get more Middle Easterns in that building. Yeah, the, I think the problem is when you want to broaden out your market, because you never know, the world's a volatile place at the moment. If you suddenly lose 
one section, Absolutely. Um, then you're stuck. So this was part of the brief for this particular building is to broaden out to different nationalities. And I think one of the key things is the sense of place. You know, we're in London, we're in Mayfair. Yes, we want to make it attractive to everybody, but part of the attraction, as long as it's luxurious and comfortable, is that it, it's a London flat. So it's not like New York, it's not like Moscow. So um, did you have to give it, when you were designing it, you were thinking about subtle ways to lend a certain London flavour yes, to it? Yeah. So we did, um, we tried to use sort of more classic furniture, you know, the British furniture making tradition, which again, you know, that's tied in with budget. So sometimes it wasn't always made in England, but we, we tried to. Um, and things like the artwork that, um, without being cliched and, and pictures of Big Ben, you can do more subtle things, close up photographs of a street sign in Mayfair, a flower store, or just a, a London artist that's not even doing anything to do with the scene of London, but they they've been they have studios in Hoxton. One of the most one of the loveliest stories I ever heard, and it's not a it's not a development that we were actually involved in, but in the teeth of the last really dreadful recession, the, the GFC, uh, there was a developer who had tried to he had developed a house on um, Trigunter Road. Trigunter Road is one of the most I mean those the, those houses are among the most expensive in London, in Kensington. And this wasn't selling and it wasn't selling, it wasn't selling. And at the time, probably flying off the back of the Candy Brothers, he was asking, he was looking for, you know, a record price for this for this house. And they couldn't work out what to do with it. Nothing was working. And they got an interior designer in. And I, I don't actually even know who it was. But what she did, she was very clever. She decided that anyone looking for this at a property like this was going to be buying a piece of London history. So she went back and she actually created a fictional family, mum, dad, the kids, the grandparents, the uncles, the aunts, and she filled this house full of stuff. So there were things like, um, you know, photographs of Uncle Alfred who'd fought in the First World War, and there were, you know, hunting trophies from someone who'd been on safari to Africa in one of the And she created this whole story, and then they threw a big party for, I don't know who the, you know, I think it was probably through some of the top estate agents, they threw a party and they invited all their high-end clients to this party and it went for more than the asking price on the first night. It went to seal bids because she'd done such a job, such a great job kind of making this thing so appealing that people felt they were buying a piece of London history. They were buying into, a, you know, five generations of, of a London family. And in somewhere like the Park Lane project you worked on where you have multiple different apartments, presumably different sizes and shapes as well. How easy is it to design a certain type of apartment in that building to appeal to a certain nationality and perhaps others might appeal to other nationalities? Is that part of the thinking? Well, it's funny you should say that because during the brief process, I suggested that maybe we have different tranches of apartments within the same building that would appeal to different nationalities. But because of the way the rentals work, it was too limiting. So say in August, there's a lot of Emiratis, so the whole place might be filled with one nationality, whereas in the winter it would be three. So uh, that didn't work. So we had to try and do a theme throughout, which again was the sort of Art Deco-ish London Mayfair glamour. But also this is where the technology came in because we did um, a central system where you could choose which TV channels came through your skybox. So you know, Al Jazeera or Russia Today, um, which really took off with the tenants. They loved that and it was set up before they checked in. So they turned on their big screen TV 
and there was their favourite channel already there. And this is also becoming commonplace in hotels now, so that you you understand who it is that you is checking into that room, and you know it welcomes them in their right language, mm. and they get their local news channels and everything else. Okay, and that's that's something as a designer you need to be aware of and tuned into, but actually is is quite straightforward for you to welcome somebody to somewhere mm. that's a home for a home. Yeah, it's straightforward, it's expensive. And again, it goes back to the ROI because we spent in that particular building a lot of money on upgrading the audiovisual, the smart home infrastructure. So that can be built on. So even if we're changing the fabrics in five years time, that Wi-Fi network, unless there's some new invention that makes it obsolete, will last and can be built on. So I think from a business point of view, you've got to have your sort of capital investment almost and then your your design bit that can change and evolve and, and be replaced. So it's, it's a careful balance. Yeah, no, I'd agree. I mean, that comes back to what we were saying earlier about things wearing out at different speeds. Mm. Yeah, you know, you can mm. you can you can change a piece of upholstered yeah. furniture, but you know, if the if the nuts and bolts of the building are, are sound, they'll mm. last you a long time and continue to to return yeah. good. And good ease returns. of use as well, you know, because if you're doing a private house to somebody, they they might be really tech savvy that all the kids have got their iPhones, the dad loves his home cinema. Um, whereas if you've got different people checking in all the time, you might get an elderly couple who don't even have a computer. You might get the teenagers who just want to plug their games in straight away. So it's got to be as easy as you can possibly make it and sort of as generic as you can possibly make it to, to get it to work and be successful. Okay. If the client is expecting you to help them define the audience with your design, what other research tools or sources of information do you have? What can you use? One of the things we always look at, we mentioned estate agents earlier, but one of the other things we always do is we look at comparables. So we would go and we would actively seek out any other similar developments or similarly targeted developments in London generally, but then particularly what's going on in your little patch. So we look at what else was happening in, in Mayfair, for example, and kind of go and check those out as, as you know, do, do a bit of secret squirreling and see what we could find out and just to see what other people are doing because what you don't want to do is be left behind. You know, you always need to be, seem to be at the cutting edge. And I think because often you plan these developments and they take quite a while to build, we always retain the. We always say to the client, we retain the um, the ability to refresh the actual kind of top level of the design, i.e., the colours and perhaps the fabrics and things, closer to the point at which it's delivered. Because what you don't want to do is plan it all out right at the beginning and expect it to stay stuck in aspect, and you find that by the time you launch it, it's dated, and someone else has come in with the latest greatest, and you've had your you know, you've had your legs whipped out from underneath you. So, you know, you need to sort of say to clients that the, you, we do have to be very cognizant about anything that's coming up behind us as well. How brave are clients in giving you a, a brief that's that's not just copy that one just down the street? I think that's partly our job to say, what you don't want me to do is copy the one down the street or otherwise, why are you employing me? You need to go and check the paint colours and, and tick off the fabrics. So. Uh, you have that to a certain extent with private clients as well, you know, they do what the neighbours do. The times I've had people putting on a massive extension to a Victorian house, like a football field, all open plan, they've got kids. And I was like, what about when the kids are making a terrible noise and you want to watch telly? Oh, no, it's great, we can see them. And then, you know, 
two years later they're dying for their dining room back or they're snug. So it can happen with um, with corporates as well. That, oh yeah, we know that building is really successful. They've got X rent per week. We're going to do that, but it's been done. You know, you, like you say, you need yeah, to do the next. You need thing. to do the next thing. You need to always keep keep refreshing it. Has the residential development market become more fragmented? Would you say in recent years? Oh, I think without question. I think once upon a time. Yeah, there was a sort of one-size-fits-all. I think it's quite tribal. I think there are lots of groups of people that kind of consider themselves to be of a type, millennials and you know various people from various parts of the world and, and people who have sets of attitudes in common. And therefore, there are lots and lots of different developments around specifically to cater for these people. And that's just as true of sort of later living developments if you look at the spread of later living developments for, for older people, retiring people, downsizers, right down through to things like TP and the quarters who are targeting people in their 20s who are looking for sort of rental studios. And, you know, it's, 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 very, it's very tribal. So, yes, it has become very fragmented. So that's part, of, again, of the trick is making sure that the, that the fragment of the market you're chasing is sufficiently large and robust to sustain what it is you're trying to achieve. And I think it's similar to the way the retail market's gone. You know, the middle ground is almost dead. So you've got Tesco, Lidl and Chanel, Marks and Spencer suffering. Um, so, you know, top end still quite booming in London. There's lots of these news, you say, you know, first time in London, first job or student that are a nice but completely different budget. It's the middle ground, the sort of executive homes, I think, are suffering at the moment. Um, so... If you have got a, a mid-range job like that, you have to almost pull in something that's attractive from the top end or the, the cheap end. Uh, and it can go wrong, I think. I saw an advert on the tube for um, you know, one of these branded rental developments, and one the big headline was John Lewis Furniture. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a great fan of John Lewis, but if I was a Generation Z, it wouldn't really appeal to me much. No, it's a bit, it's a bit comfortable. Mar- it's a bit married it's with last, kids. But yeah. Yeah. So I thought that's where it, the, the story's gone wrong. Yeah. You know, uh, for that particular thing, I was, I was quite surprised. Again, it, it's about understanding the audience and how the design, the, the furnishings, the, the, the decor can affect who you're trying to attract. Yes, yeah. and it's that thing about, you're the manager director of the company that owns the building, you like John Lewis furniture, it's very comfortable, you've had it for years, you're not 20 and moving into Shoreditch for it would be time. It would be like saying, and we've bought all the all the linen, all the, everything else has come from Marks and Spencer's, yeah. and it's sort of going to appeal to your granny and not to... Exactly. Of course. Uh, what about developer expectations? Do you think they're higher now than they used to be with all these branded developments? Do you think they can yield more revenue at that top end? I think that there's a big squeeze going on on developments in central London at the moment caused by a whole raft of different things not the least of which being Brexit but you know we've we've there's a massive oversupply so many people people saw this as a as a, as a way to print money and there's just so many people have leapt onto the bandwagon and actually just quietly there are mothballed sites all over London. So is that having an impact on on new developments presumably it is there must be a bit of a shortfall at the moment? I think there aren't that many. I think there are there are some there are some still some very high end ones going ahead mm. that I hear about. I think again you're absolutely right, Dean, that quite a lot of those sort of middle end ones have, have been squeezed. Yeah. But when we talk about mid end, they're not really that mid end. They're actually still really so expensive that mm. they're beyond just the the remit of anyone local to buy. You know, there was there was supposed to be this never ending kind of stampede of people coming from Malaysia to buy these, you know. One million pound two bedroom apartments, and 
they haven't arrived. So how is that affecting the expectations, back to that original question, in terms of what they expect from you in design? Well, I think a lot of the smart money turned around and went into the private residential sector, but that's a bit overcooked now as well. I mean, all this will change again. You know, it's not it's not that doom and gloom. But I think the the the, the really clever developers are looking to differentiate themselves by using design to make themselves stand out. Yes. And that in com- that in com- in combination with the fragmentation in the market that we were just discussing. So if you you know if you have a designer who's clever enough who can help them to 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 target and catch that market, they'll still do very well. More important than ever then to listen to oh, your designer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I like to say so. And also the services they offer, the sort of community things. Remember in this country, we've had this whole hangover of the 60s tower blocks, which were meant to be a really you know, amazing experiment to get people out of slums and didn't work and sort of destroyed communities. So now we're having the skyscrapers again at the different end, the luxury end. But they still, I think the successful ones have got an eye on the community spirit. So most of them now have like a cinema, the gym, the pool, um, residence rooms that you can rent say, out they for have parties. Exactly, party spaces. Yeah. So if you if you have a small apartment but you want to have a party for 50 people, you just rent one of the rooms yeah. and they'll cater for you. You know, if you tell them what you want, yeah. how many people are coming, they'll, they'll, they'll cater for it and they'll clear up, clear up afterwards. I mean, you pay for it, obviously, yeah. but it's all those amenity spaces are there. And actually part and parcel of the design remit for most interior designers is to actually also design those oh, amen- yes. amenities and, and that's the, the character of the building mm. is when you, you know when you're doing the show around to a potential purchaser you're going to show them the cinema and the members club and the pool and that's going to be if, even if they can only afford the you know floor two studio at the bargain price of eight hundred thousand, they feel they're buying into that it's not like a brand really they're buying into that glamorous lifestyle the same people that you know the penthouse are going to use the same pool and cinema room so it's, it's that sort of aspirational uh, aspect of the branding. And we talked earlier about the the, the split between uh, workplace, residential, healthcare. Actually, what you're designing then is something that's a really multi-purpose, multi-functional space mm. that's got lots of different things going yeah. on. You need to be an expert at multiple things. Yes, yes absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's very true. It's almost like town planning then. You know, the other stuff that's going around the Battersea Power Station at the moment, they've made sure there's a really beautiful grocer's shop, there's a coffee shop, there's, you know... Um, it, they've really put a lot of thought and money into making it a community and a new district as well as just the, the, the big, like The great London estates have been doing that for some time now, both, in fact, yeah. uh, you know, Cadogan and uh, Grosvenor and what's the one up in Marylebone? Howard de Walden. Howard de Walden. They actively curate their, res- their, their shopping streets yeah. because they know that if they make the shopping streets really gorgeous, so you think about Elizabeth Street or Seymour Place or any of those you know, cute little streets, what it does is it drives the rents up so because people actively want to live there. So they actually make more money on their rentals by perhaps taking a hit on some of the, uh, the retail rents. But, you know, they'll, they'll encourage a small boutique who wouldn't normally be able to afford to be there, but they'll give them a break on the rent because they know it makes it a more attractive place for people to live. So this is all this, this whole, and you're right, sense of community, but it it's also attracts other people in. You, again, you don't want to feel ghettoised. You don't want to feel that the only person in your gym Jim's not a very good example, but for example, if some of these developments that have um, restaurants and things in them, the idea is to make it a really cool restaurant so that you get really cool people from outside so that when people arrive, they kind of feel, oh, I'm suddenly part of the in crowd. And that's really important. It's, it's bringing the outside in and making it, uh, giving it some context. We talked earlier about the financial pressures. Do you feel you get penalised if a design doesn't work? 
in one of these developments? I think often it can be the case. It's not often, often it isn't the designer's fault. Often it can be, it can be to do with operations. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that comes to bear on, on any sort of commercial. It could be it's badly run. It could be that they're not well maintained. There could be any number of factors impacting the, the success or failure of, 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 the, um, of the development. Mm. But yes, or that I the think brief wasn't correct in the, the first place. So correct. we as designer have met their brief very well. But it was the wrong brief because they hadn't done their homework. Or we've, about or we've their, told um, them what they should be doing, and actually they've just gone back and they've, just, they've gone back and, and instructed yeah. you to do what yeah. they want in their own house, which is not really yeah. targeting that target market. So yes, it, it is for. I mean, the, the designer I think probably is often an easy target. Hmm. I think designers do get blamed sometimes when things don't go so well. And how do you then manage that kind of situation? Take it on the chin, walk away, learn from experience. I think a little bit. Yeah. 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 And just go back to the thing of like, this was the, just can I remind you, this was the brief and this is how we met it. So being as firm as you possibly can be in terms of defining that brief, defining yeah. the audience, making sure the client understands and doing as much research yeah. as you possibly yeah. can. And I think also just being a bit firm during the design process saying, okay, you know, it's your building, it's your money. I can do it differently. If you want to have different furniture or paint a different color or have the room layouts differently, but this is my opinion. Can we note that? You know, so um, I think we're pretty good at you know looking at different markets because we're a step away from it. So, you know, it's not as personal. You know, we know what's going on in the design world. We know what the the trends are. Um, we've worked for enough different kinds of clients to know what people need what to live. What you're trying to say, my darling, is that we're really old. old. <laughs> <laughs> the other yeah. word is experienced. Yeah. But open to new ideas, Susan. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yes. Look, young at heart. <laughs> do, you do you think interior designers are um, tuned into that enough, generally? It depends on the... I mean, you've got the, the sort of grand old designers that, or even some of the younger ones that have a set style. That's their style. That As a client, that's what you pay for because you like that style. That's great, famous. It can also be not so great because if your signature style goes out and you're not adaptable... Not so much fun. No, but no, no, no. I, I, I definitely, I've seen a trend. I definitely know that more designers now are getting involved in things like branding and, and marketing and and, and be, being much more aware of the commercial um, realities of their clients' projects, their clients' requirements. What's one piece of advice would you have for a designer about to embark on a branded development for the first time? Do your homework. Just go out there and find out everything you can about your target audience and who else is out there trying to address that same market. And I think be keen on that brand. Very sensible advice. So this is the part of the show, this is my favourite part of the show, where we ask our special guest, in this case Dean, um, for the funniest experience that he's ever had working on a project with an unknown client. The funniest one was a very grand apartment building in Belgravia. Uh, I was doing the common parts for the landlord and it's quite tricky because you don't know what's behind the doors of the individual apartments. So it could be stuff with antiques, you know, Lord and Lady whatnot, or it could be a New York art dealer that's their London pad and it's completely minimal apart from the Jeff Coons or whatever. So plus it was a listed building, so there were limitations. And the landlord decided, we'd done a few of them, a few different buildings, and they decided that it'd be good to bring the residents more into it so I could actually meet the client. So I did a, a proposal, they had an open meeting. Um, nobody came except the representative of um, an oligarch's ex-wife, Sergei the chauffeur. 
Uh, he was delighted with my designs. Uh, and then three days later, I got a message saying, uh, Mrs. Oligarch doesn't like them. So I said, what doesn't she like? She doesn't, doesn't like them. So I said, I think we actually need to, to meet. So fair enough that I not arrange the meeting. We're standing in communal parts of the, the building. The Sergei comes in, a very terrified looking PA comes in. We're all waiting. And then Madame rushes in and starts screaming at me that she doesn't like the colours, she doesn't like that. I literally couldn't get a word in Edrose. So I just like stopped her and said, right, can we look at the board, please? And tell because I had the sample board there. And then she was like, for example, this, I hate this carpet. And I was like, it's not carpet, it's a marble floor. Oh, that's okay then. And just like stomped back out to, <laughs> that was the, end to of the waiting limo. Never heard again. <laughs> Very pleased. Very good. So sometimes it, you have to make an effort to meet the unknown client that you won't meet. <laughs> Unbelievable. Can't believe that somebody would have mistaken carpet for a marble floor. <laughs> How could you make she just didn't look. She hadn't looked. She hadn't no, looked. just like had a quick glance at one piece of carpet, didn't like the shade of that carpet, and went crazy. The secretary looked absolutely terrified, terrified because sure. I'd answered back. Mm. And nobody ever answered Madame back. So anyway, it worked. She didn't, yeah. I didn't get sacked. And we did my scheme. We changed it. We lightened the carpet shade. <laughs> just as a little. Very good. Very good. Excellent. Thank you, Nora Levin, for hosting our discussion today. And thank you, Dean Kiewit, for your wonderful input. My pleasure. Great work, Dean. The interior design business is available from audio on-demand services everywhere. And if you enjoy listening to the series, then please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at InDesignPod, Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod, and on LinkedIn at The Interior Design Business Podcast. We are brought to you with support from Trade at Houseology. This episode of The Interior Design Business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production.